You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. My guest today on Experiencing Data is John Cutler, who is a product evangelist at Amplitude Software. Uh, I have been really enjoying uh, John's uh, commentary on Twitter and some of his articles on Medium uh, about designing uh, better decision support tools. So uh, if you're in this space and you're trying to figure out how do I get into the heads of what our customers need, uh, what types of uh, data is actually important to track, especially if you're looking at uh, longer term outcomes that you want to be able to measure and provide insight on. I think you're going to enjoy uh, my conversation with John. So without further ado, here's my chat with John Cutler. All right, we're back uh, uh, to experiencing data. Uh, and today we've got the cuttlefish uh, as your Twitter handle is known, right? Is it cutlefish or cuttlefish? <laughs> we're going to go with cuttlefish. Not cuttle. <laughs> That's what I thought. Um, John Cutler is here from Amplitude uh, Software, which is a product analytics company. And I wanted to have John on today, not because he is cute necessarily, but because uh, I've, I've really been enjoying what you're espousing about customer experience and uh, particularly product management, which for some of our listeners that are not working in tech companies necessarily, there's not really a product management kind of role explicitly by title. But I think some of the uh, as you will probably account to, the, the overlap between design, user experience, and product is sometimes a gray area. And I, I think some of the things you're talking about are important in the context of building analytics tools. So welcome to the show. Tell, fill in, make corrections on what I just said about what you're doing. You're a product evangelist at Amplitude. So what does that, what does that mean and what are you up to over there? Well, we're still trying to figure out the evangelist part. Okay. Because <laughs> I, you know, I don't necessarily uh, sell or evangelize our product. I, I, I think our product's great. And, and I like to say it sort of sells itself. But what I'm really focusing on is helping up-level teams. Now, that could be like our internal teams or customers, but, but largely to just prospects and teams that have never even heard of Amplitude. Mm-hmm. And so what we're really looking with this role is to do workshops, provide content. I do these coaching sessions with just random teams. So it's like one-hour coaching sessions. But generally trying to fill in the blanks. I think a lot of times people think, well, I'm just going to purchase this analytics tool or this product analytics tool, and suddenly it's going to answer all our questions and everything's going to be fine. And what they don't quite realize is that you really have to you have to tweak a lot of things about how you work as as a product development team to really to really make use of the great tools that are available. There's amazing tools available. I, I believe Amplitude's one of them, but there's, there's so many good software as a service products to help product teams. But really, at the end of the day. It's about the team also being aligned and things like that. So I really try to take a broad view of, of what it will take to help people make better products uh, with this role. Yeah, yeah. Can you give an example? I, I, I think I know where you're going with this, but give an example of where someone had to change their expectate, like you need to change the way you're working or let's figure out what's important to measure instead of just expecting. I'm, I think you're alluding to like, Oh, by our tool, we know what the important analytics and measurement points are that you should care about, and we will un- 
unveil them. <laughs> and instead, it's like, well, what's important to track? Does time on site matter? Does like, you know, engagement in the application matter? Does sharing matter? Like, what what matters? Right? Can you can you talk about maybe where there was a learning experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you know maybe a good way to describe this as well is like your um, a lot of the learning, a lot of the questions begin way before the team is kind of un, unwrapping the problem and unraveling the problem. So a very specific, I'm not sure this answers your question exactly, but we're gonna, I think we could lead into something more specific. Um, but, you know, imagine you're a team and someone says, oh, you know, it's the second half of 2018. What's going to be on your roadmap? And you think about it and you kind of know what you know, and you've heard customers tell you things and they're, you know, the CEO of the company has sort of subtly, but not so subtly hinted, he'd really like to see X or she'd really like to see X. And you put together this roadmap. And at that point, once you've kind of got people thinking that those solutions are the right solutions and you force that level of convergence, there's not a lot of... <laughs> Measurement will not save you at that point, right? Like you've already committed at that point to um, deliver those things in that, in that particular setting. So one example of a practice that might change to kind of further or, you know, amplify the use of measurement would just be not making, uh, you know, committing to missions, committing to move particular metrics that the company believes are associated with mid to long-term growth of the company um, and commit to those things instead of committing to build uh, features. So, you know, an example, uh, you know, a real world example, maybe for someone's effort, maybe what you're shooting at before is, you know, did they shift from same time on site was important to something else. But for a lot of these teams, it's shifting from build feature X to something like uh, you know, shortening the time it takes for a team to be able to complete uh, a workflow, uh, and and that and that's the big shift for that, that right? So it's it's nothing to something that makes sense, not necessarily even something to something. Was one of the themes we talk about on the show is designing for outcomes instead of designing outputs. Yep, um, it, because it's very easy to create assets and create code and things that look like progress. They mask themselves as progress and improvement, uh, and they they may not actually return any business value or customer value explicitly. So we have to consciously know what the the outcomes are that we want, let alone measure them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> do Do you deal with like? Do you run into the problem when you? So if you're coaching someone and getting them into this mindset of designing around an outcome. And building your sprints or, you know, your, your next, well, maybe it's even a strategy for the next six to 12 months around outcomes yep. that the important things to measure are not quantifiable in the tool. Like, do you work yourself out of a, out of a, of a customer sometimes because the tool can't actually measure what's important? Like, does that ever happen? You know, that's a great question because I think that I do a fun exercise with people, which is called, you know, um, let's predict the success of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And we start with this activity and we just sort of, we, we forget about what we think is possible to measure and we just start mapping our beliefs. You know, so the team will say something like, well, you know, I think that um, they shouldn't have arguments. And then someone will say, well, yeah, you know, but it's not just, you know, maybe they're talking about their own life. Like, well, we argue a lot, but we resolve our arguments pretty, we, we become stronger once we have the arguments. So then, you know, the team will sit there and go, huh, okay. 
it's not just about the number of arguments, it's ability to, you know, uh, resolve. resolve your arguments, right? And so we keep playing this game and we map our beliefs out to, you know, predicting these things. And some of these things we have more confidence about, and some of these things we don't have a lot of confidence about, some of these things we strike, you know, and, and we get this big messy network of, of nodes and edges on the, on the wall, and that's what we start working with. What's really, really interesting is that we actually, you know, as a company, there's, there's almost always some percentage of these things that we can contribute to in terms of what they can instrument in, in using our product. So it's not like um, we would much rather our customers map the universe of things and acknowledge some things that might be difficult to measure or they, they're just beliefs at the moment. They haven't figured out how to measure them. Because really, like, you know, what, what Amplitude is very powerful at is doing behavioral analytics about these sort of longstanding customer journeys through products. And, and those types of, you know, anyone who's done like a 15-table join and tried to communicate it to other people in your company and then tweak it and have people collaborate with it just knows how painful that is. And so that's the type of pain that we sort of solve. But, you know, back, back to the particular question, all the coaching really centers around mapping all the beliefs. And we're usually confident that some, you know, that there, there are ways to measure some percentage of those things using our product. And, and that, that's fine by us. So there's, there's almost like a meta question, right? <laughs> I like, I'm, I'm meta. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there with you. You're like analytics. You're an analytics product and <laughs> you talk to your clients about what's important for them to measure. But then at some point, you have to know what's important to measure to know that your customers are getting the value. Yeah. So is it directly like, are you interested in what they're setting up to measure? And then that becomes your kind of measurement of like, do, do you piggyback off that? Or do you like, how do you justify that, you know, the sprint or the Epic we worked on last quarter provided business value? Like how do you, as a, uh, yeah, that's creator, amazing. So yeah, we, we definitely dog food our product and we, we also dog food the advice we give people. Usually, kind of first, and to give you an example, like in 2018, we had this North Star metric called weekly querying users (WQUs), uh, and that seemed about right. And you know, we could we did some analysis, and it looked like, well, you know, if we're increasing WQUs, it's probably going to mean this and this, and it's going to be some you know early indicator that that our monthly recurring revenue is going to keep going up, etc. But there were obvious problems with that. And, and we saw that. And as 2018 kind of went along, we started to look at it more. And for any SaaS company, there's a point at which your expansion within existing accounts is, you know, starts to be, be really, really important in terms of percentage of, of revenue that you're in. And, you know, we thought, well, is that, is, is that metric, can you hand WQUs to any new team member and say, move that or move something that you think moves that and then be 100% confident they're going to make good decisions? And, and it kind of broke down after that. So what we did is we shifted to weekly learning users. Now, a weekly learning user is not just someone querying, because you could, you know, anyone who uses one of these tools knows you could just sit there and, you know, query all day and not get an answer. In fact, querying more might indicate that you are not getting an answer, right? Right. Not like doing anything with it. So a weekly learning user is actually someone who shares some piece of digestible content, whether it's a notebook, whether it's a dashboard, whether it's a chart, and they share it. So, you know, we actually have this North Star, which is weekly learning users. We believe these three inputs drive weekly learning users. And those are activated accounts, like they need to know what they're doing. 
their broadcasted learnings, which is the ability for the uh, user to to attempt to broadcast some number of learnings, and then a metric that is sort of a consumption of learning metric, which is the the broad consumption across the organization of that particular piece of learning. So this is all sounds really heady. (laughs) Why would we go to all these lengths to do this? And weekly querying users sounded good. But to us, this really encapsulates a strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important thing that a lot of people in from kind of pure analytics backgrounds or, you know, who are used to sitting with a queue of questions and answering those questions are maybe not used to the idea of kind of moving towards a cohesive strategy as expressed by a number of metrics and the relationships between those metrics. And that's something that we really encourage our customers to do. It's not data snacking, right? It's not kind of like, oh, you know, I got this itch today. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to answer this question. That took a lot of work to come up with that. And, and we're confident about those relationships between those things. But more importantly, it helps any new team member. Like you need, all you need to do is show a skilled product manager or a skilled designer or you know, developer even and say, this is our current mental model as described by the relationship between these things. Where do you want to slot in? You know, what do you have in mind? And that's really, really powerful. So I don't know if that, that roundabout way of saying we take this really, really seriously. So if I can sum this up and I'll need you to repeat part of it, but you had sure. monthly querying users. So what, I'm, what I take that to be is I, the customer using uh, paying for Amplitude software, a querying user means I went in and I, I looked for content or I literally used a search interface to, to, to probably look up an analytic or some stat and you moved away from the number of people doing that and how often they're doing it as a measurement of your company's success right. to this three-stage kind of thing that I, I heard included sharing some knowledge. But can you repeat what those, oh, yeah, those three sure. grains so, were? So the North Star is what we call weekly learning users, so WLUs. Uh-huh. And those are users sort of performing the behavior of interest, right, which is sort of, uh, you know, uh, sharing uh, distributing some piece of content. Um, mm-hmm. And then we believe there are three inputs that that explain that metric or three inputs that we really focus on. Um, one is that uh, the, the accounts are activated, which are meaning that does this account just have a minimum number of people doing that? Mm-hmm. The next one is broadcasted learnings, which is sort of like me, you know, is the initial attempt to broadcast the learning. <laughs> And then consumption is the actual long tail uh, consumption of that particular learning. So let's say it as a story, like I sign up with Amplitude. Um, no one's really using it all because we haven't really onboarded and we haven't really instrumented. We haven't done any of that stuff. Okay, well, then we get that done. So we get just, we've activated. We have at least a certain number of users kind of do learning some amount. Mm-hmm. I'm in the tool. I'm in a notebook that is really interesting that I'm putting together that tells a story with data, very interesting about the mission that I'm working on. And I attempt to sort of invite people to that notebook or get them involved. That's the broadcast. And then finally, the consumption of learning would be the kind of the accumulated interactions with everyone with the notebook. <laughs> that sounds too complex. Got it. But, I don't know. I, I, I... But, but the whole idea is, and you know, so, you know, the idea is for people listening and, and I think especially folks, you know, designers and, and other folks is that they, you know, their experience with analytics might be something very simple, like, you know, what percentage of people used feature or something. Right. And what, what they're not getting is the context, the relationships. And, right. you know, what I'm describing here, you could, you know, it's a, there's Bayesian belief networks, there's causal relationship diagrams, there's just simple stickies and string on the wall, whatever you want to call them. 
but we're describing our beliefs as it relates to the data. And I think that that's um, really important. And, and, you know, for some background too, you know, I'm not a data scientist. I'm, I don't have, like, I've been a product manager and a UX researcher, and that's been my focus for a long time. So, you know, it's not like I'm a pro at this stuff. And even for me though, it, it grounds me in, in what's, what I'm supposed, what I'm, what I'm working with and, and, and makes my analysis a lot easier. I imagine you may have some, not resistance, but when you're working with quote, data people or analytics people <laughs> or data science people in your staff, like in your at Amplitude, are there routine things that you wish they would hear that would sink in or problems that maybe they're not aware of that you think they should be like, we need to look at the problem differently. <laughs> and maybe you encapsulated that. And that's why you have this three stage thing as a reaction to the data snacking mentality, which is what data do we provide? Great. They have it. Now they can eat it. You know, like, is yeah. that the reaction to that? Or are there other things that like, and I'm thinking of like our listeners, we do have data scientists and analytics type people. And I'm wondering like, if you were to work with them, it's like, here are the things that I want you to think about here to get, get our head a little bit out of the tech for a second and into the decision support mentality. Like, right. Any, any, anything like, what would you espouse or kind of advocate? That's a great question. You know, I think I can answer it a little bit with a story. So I was the, the PM for search and relevance at Zendesk uh-huh. it's like support. Right. Software. So, you know, my background is, is not in, you know, information retrieval or the, the, the guts of search. Mm-hmm. But very, very early on, working on a team with very, very talented people who, who, you know, data scientists, data engineers, really, at the end of the day. One thing that that I very much advocated for is we needed to be able to get everyone in the same room. We needed to get the people who were experts in the, you know, the, what I would just call the actors, you know, the support agents or the support managers or, the, you know, the person trying to get help on their Uber app, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like there's experts in that. There's domain experts. There's also people who are experts in the surface area, the, the surface, you know, like the interface. There's people who are really, really good at searching or finding information on mobile. People is very good at finding information on, uh, you know, in our case, like the support agents view in their web browser, right? And then you had our people who were really smart and great at data <laughs> science as it related to search, and they were great at data engineering, et cetera. And so the main thing that I noticed was that there's just a siloing. And the people on my team were just craving craving to be sit next to someone who understood these other things really well. And I think that for, you know, a lot of the listeners, it's probably, you know, that, you know, that from a first principles angle, you're kind of like, well, you know, I know that there's a bigger picture here. You know, I know that just, you know, like in our case of searching, like we knew that raising the mean reciprocal rank of a search term, uh, you know, where you're searching and like, where does the person click? Do they click on the second item, the fifth item? You know, in theory, raising that would make a difference. But when we look more broadly, it really didn't relate to deflection of tickets and things like that. So our, our traditional metrics, the way we were measuring success is locally related to search. If we broadened our horizon to what makes a difference for the human beings out there who need their support tickets resolved or the support agents or things, that, that perspective was so helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, what I would say to the folks on on listening, it's kind of like, you know, in your heart, you should pair with domain experts and people who know the human problem out there. 
mm-hmm. and understand the decisions being made. I think organizationally, there's a lot of organizational inertia that discourages that, unfortunately. And so you need to fight for it. <laughs> so I'm sort of, I'm, I guess my, my advice is fight for it because you know, you know that that's important. And you know that this is not just like a, you know, a pure data science problem or pure analytics problem. There's probably, there's a lot of surrounding information that you need to understand to be able to actually help the business. Sure. And you're, you're echoing sentiment. I mean, I had a data center from the Broad Institute on and he, you know, he was mentioning how much he's like, my work is so much more powerful when I have a great domain expert with me who really knows the space. We, we met over a music. I am a musician as well. And he was trying to explore creativity in the context of jazz and he doesn't know the he's a enthusiast in terms of in music he's not a musician but he's an enthusiast so he kind of understood some of it but he didn't have the lingo and you and it's just interesting when you look at someone working in that space trying to answer a question about like how does creativity work in jazz and they don't have all that domain lingo right being, being um, for a change being the domain expert it was fascinating <laughs> for me to be on the other side because usually I'm I'm the him advocate, even though I'm not a data scientist, you know, as a designer and consultant, we deal with this all the time. It's like, we got to get the right bodies in the room that, that know the right questions to ask. And I, you know, I can smell when the right questions aren't being asked and it's power. It's so powerful. So I, I totally agree with you on, on the need to provide that bigger context sometimes. So you don't just, I mean, jazz is just a mistake played more than once, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's tons of them. There's no, there's no wrong notes, just bad choices. Very easy for him to create the model for that. You just make a mistake and play it more than once. Exactly. (laughs) And then you go back to the the top, you know. Exactly. Well, even that, like play the head again. Well, what's a head? Oh, okay. Well, it's just one form of the tune and they cycle through it and play choruses. What's a chorus? Okay, shit. So, But it's even having that, you can imagine that in a business context. I mean, this was like a fun side project he was working on, but you can imagine that in a business context where you just don't even have, you don't even know what you don't know yet about it yet. You know, and I, I kind of hear this is happening. You know, there's still in, in the, especially in the non-tech company space, right? The more traditional companies that are, oh, we have a hundred years of data and let's go, we need to go buy some data scientists, throw them at this pile of data and then magic will come out the other end. <laughs> oh, I think that that happens in tech companies too, though. I mean, yeah. I think that that's like the number of data scientists friends who've been hired in is like some large effort. And then, you know, one, they're like, yeah, and data engineering was the actual problem. Yeah. You know, like, like, okay, we spent our first, you know, year there just going around in circles on solving that problem. And then, right. yeah, the number of friends I have who've been frustrated by that dynamic, even in tech companies, I think mm-hmm. it's a, a pretty common, more common everywhere than we would think. We've been talking about the analytical part of, of all of this, the quantifiable parts largely, but you have a UX research background as well. And, you know, we talk on this show, we talk about empathy. We talk about the needs to go talk to people, to ask good questions, to ladder up, get into all that. So how does that fit in when you're working on an analytics tool? Can you fill us in on the, your approach to qualitative research and, and more of the soft mushy stuff that UX people deal with? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, there? it's, it's interesting. So, you know, for, for context, I'm not a UX researcher at Amplitude. Right, right. But, right, but I've I've done that in in prior environments that that required the the chops, right? Mm-hmm. But but in talking to teams and doing it, I think that the I think so many of the basics apply in the sense that you are you're you're really 
I mean, to not to overuse the jobs to be done stuff, you're really, really trying to understand what decision this person is hoping to make. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're really, tra- and then what impact that decision has on the rest of the organization and who is involved in it. And, and I think anyone who's done this knows the, it, even as a UX researcher, if I do like a co-design activity with customers related to anything analytics oriented, it's just, you know, oh, we're going to do an Excel mock-up or, you know, anytime you get customers involved with that, it's so easy if you, either side, if, and I've been on both sides of this, it's so easy to forget what you were trying to do. Right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some, and I think that has a lot to do with the exploratory aspect of data in general, that we have a gut instinct that if we just saw this stuff organized kind of like this, then it would somehow be valuable for something we have to do. Um, so I think that for, you know, and I don't know if it answers the question, but I think it requires the same chops, but also understanding that, that people just have a hard time, users have a hard time talking about what they are looking at and what they're hoping to get out of the, the data when they're looking at it <laughs> over and over and over. And so I think that that really, it really, you have to use like all the tools in the tool shed. Um, to give you an example, like there was, um, you know, like, I don't know if, if you've done these things too. Like I'll do these exercises where it's like, okay, we're revamping the app. It's just going to be this mo- mobile browser with three numbers on it. And it's just going to, that, that's it. That We're, we're not going to have all these fancy charts. We're not going to have all this stuff. And, and three numbers and then one piece of sort of narrative advice, like consider this or do this. And I love activities like that from a UX researcher standpoint when I'm working with people because it really, really forces them to just kind of get out of their own head. Yeah. <laughs> to think about it. So, you know, that's, that's like a common trick and you, you probably have a lot more, but yeah, I don't know if I answered the question, but it's a lot of the same tools, but I think also you have to really, and, and it's sort of a job environment, you know, they're making decisions, they're hiring these analytics to do a job, but then with this added layer that I think that people are just incredibly, they find it incredibly difficult to talk about the numbers that they're looking at. So when you say it's difficult for them to talk about it, are you talking are you talking about their digestion of what's on the screen or their expression of what's important to them to actually find out? Like, what do I actually want to learn about? Is it what, both which, really? And that's the thing that I think is makes it hard, right? Like, yeah. it means that if you show them something, and and I think that we can all relate to it too. Like any of us who have been shown some mock or some prototype of information on the screen, like you can see your gears turning, you know, you're kind of having to process it. And then where did this come from? Can I trust it? Yeah. There's, there's, you know, what is it? We see that all the time, just in, in, in amplitude. It's people are, our, our understanding of how people experience some of these querying screens that we have. When you actually ask them to just sort of talk through what they're thinking about as they move through it. I mean, it's just, it's so complex. Mm-hmm data trust, where is the stuff coming from? What, what, you know, data over time, their challenges with certain visualization techniques, even if it's quote unquote, the right technique, you know, like, well, I just need a radar chart. No, you don't really, Mm -hmm. but, but that's how they've been, you know, anchored or whatever. So it's just complex. I I don't have a fancy answer. It's just complex. This, uh, what you just told me reminds me of, uh, you, you had mentioned you do this exercise and I'm, I'm wondering if it's the same exercise that, that I've done as well with, with analytics tools, especially, uh, in the context of monitoring applications. So there's some system that's monitoring stuff and it's supposed to 
you know, advise you on what should I do next or what happened, something like this. And it's like, instead of thinking about what are all the right stats to do, it's right in plain English, like a prose format. What would be the, what would be the value that we could possibly show? And maybe we can't even technically do it today, right? but it's express the analytics in words. Like you should change this knob to seven instead of nine, because we found out X, Y, and Z happened. And we yeah. also think blah, 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 blah. And this is how we know that. And there's your recommendation. It's highly prescriptive, but it's an exercise in like thinking about the customer's experience. Like how close to that can we get to, right? Where I don't have to, to infer from charts or whatever the, the data viz format is. How close could we get to something that prescriptive? And then try to kind of work backwards from that. And we probably can't get right to that full prose. You know, is it something like that where you, you jump to this kind of conclusion? like value conclusion or something like that. Yeah, and and you know I have I do a couple of these like that. Like one is I I if I have an Alexa or if I have like a tube of uh crackers or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm like this is the interface now. Like you can ask Alexa. Like that's that's your interface. Right. And this is a beautiful future world where you just have your, you know, your smart person, your smart assistant to do these things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, sim- uh, similar type of, I think, I think what it does is it creates just enough dissonance to kind of snap people out of just immediately trying to unravel the visualization, um, which can be, I think, I think all of us do that. I think that that's our instinct whenever we look at something like that. The default next question is how should we visualize this data that we've captured? That That's the, the itch that we may not be the one to scratch. Yeah, but I think that's also what we can test with at that point. Like when we've got that need to fill, that's when we can try multiple approaches, I think, to see that. To, so I, I, that's that's my experience. There's that point at which you need to kind of, you, you go back to the drawing board. Although I would say that depending on the subject, the, the, the user in that case or the person you're working with, some people are really, really good at just, kind of the co-design aspect. I, I don't know your experience with that, but it seems to have a lot to do with what the people do each day and how they think about visualization and stuff. But I've done co-design sessions with people who the next step was, well, let's start thinking about, you know, let's start drawing. Let's start doing some other things to do it. So I think that depends a lot on the, the background of the people that you're working with. If you were starting over today, like with Amplitude, um, is there either a, not necessarily a feature you would change, but is there something that you would approach differently? So someone says, hey, we have this JavaScript widget, you paste it into your, all your app or whatever, and we can track almost anything, any activity, whatever. What should we show? Is there something you would change about maybe how you guys went, the process you went about arriving at the current product that you have? That's interesting. I mean, I wish Spencer and Jeffrey and were here to answer because they're the founders <laughs> of the company. But, you know, I think that um, it's it's funny how products kind of have their history about them. So Amplitude, for example, it was a Y Combinator. It, the, the founders didn't go to Y Combinator. They had this fancy like voice app or something that they were working on. And this was actually just their effort. They were like, well, we kind of had this app and they kind of surveyed what was available. And then just like, well, we really need, if there's a thing, it's a little different. It's like an event-based measurement thing. We, we really want to instrument this app and know whether people are using it or not. And so that's kind of the, that was the, the founding story. It wasn't, wasn't their key thing. A lot of the early customers were folks from 
Zenga or Facebook or other places that like had moved on to other startups. And then they wanted something that helped with the 90% of product questions that they had around retention and engagement and complex behavior patterns is, you know, does this behavior predict this or is there a relationship between these things? So that's kind of the founding story, these discerning teams that, that had a fair amount of autonomy and were tasked with kind of working in these environments and they wanted a, a product that they could do that with. So when I'm thinking about like what I would change as kind of newcomer to the company, <laughs> now maybe five years on, was it? Yeah, six years or seven years on. I think, I think it's kind of what they're starting to do now, which is interesting. Like this notebooks feature to me is just so, so, so good. And it gets away from a traditional dashboard, but with a notebook, so very similar to a data science notebook, you can weave this story and this narrative and you can, you can make the charts live and you can communicate it and you can do those things. As, as a product manager, that is pure gold to me. Mm-hmm. And it's just, we've started to do those things. So I, I think that the answer would be more of what they're really digging into now, which is around this learning user concept and, and how do you create stories with the data to motivate your team and keep everyone kind of aligned and things. So I, I think that would have, if it hadn't existed and I joined a year ago, I'd have been like, oh, you're missing this little element, like the actual part that integrates it into day-to-day product development, but they've just started doing that now. So they, they stole my answer. <laughs> nice. And just for people that don't know, tell me if I got this right, but the the notebooks uh, for people that aren't data scientists, it's, it's effectively a, a collection of both quantified quant data, like maybe charts or tables, stats, data collection that you guys have put into some kind of visualized widgets or whatever it may be, insights, plus qualitative stuff like my commentary on it. Like, why do we care about this? Well, design is currently tracking these metrics because we're running a study on da-da-da and we think we can move this up. And that's a proxy for this other thing. So you can provide all this context in that kind of storytelling mentality so that when someone new comes in, they're like, why do I care about like time on site or whatever the, the exactly. metric. And that's the huge thing. I mean, when you, one thing that we learn, you know, we're in, we're in this business of teams getting going. It's like the, it's so easy to get to the point where you've instrumented your products and any new person joining your company can't make heads or tails of anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you've got all these events. They're all, are these duplicate events? You've got, you know, we've invested a lot of time in this taxonomy feature, which helps manage your taxonomy. Like, it's, it's way, way, when people try to build this stuff in house, they just forget about all that stuff, right? right. Like, oh, it's just events. It's like, you know, semi-structured information. We're going to put it here and then we're just going to run queries on it. But it, like all that's really, really important. So back to the notebooks thing, like one of the biggest uh, use cases we've seen in notebooks is people using them to onboard people and orient them with all the available um, analytics that, that, and metrics and things that are being recorded. So that's actually really good testament to show that, that need, right? Oh, so they use yeah. it to actually show how they use amplitude at the, right. It's pretty meta, right? Like, wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So, you know, yeah, we, we see them do that and it's sort of, or even some have used it for training, you know, like, okay, you know, let's start with this idea that we've got this whole universe of users. Well, how would we segment those? Well, here are the key ways that we segment. Okay, now we've gone down one layer, you know, and then, and so I think that that's kind of cool. But yeah, for people who don't know about these data science notebooks, it is a mix of qualitative, quantitative. Uh, you can embed charts that are live, or you could embed like point in time charts, you can make comments, and you can do various things. And I, I think that I think for a lot of people who don't do this for a living, they get intimidated and it's not this, a lot of the stuff is not rocket science, but it's, it, 
it's just annoying to have to go to someone in your company and say, hey, could you spend like three or four hours just explaining our information to us? <laughs> like that's really hard to do. So these notebooks right. help with that particular thing. So I, th- I think I think that type of stuff is really um, kind of the f- the future of moving away from just sort of very, very kind of staid dashboards and things like that. Right, right. I don't know if there's much in the terms of uh, predictive or prescriptive intelligence in the tool. Do you guys, uh, does does the tool provide that as well? Or is it mostly rear view mirror kind of uh, analytics? You know, it's just sort of chip. It's, it's interesting you say that. So we have this new feature called impact analysis. And so in impact analysis, you know, you you are able to kind of go from day zero of a particular use of a particular feature and then see the impact that it has on a set other set of things. And, and we give, we give some statistics and we give some other values in there, but, but we're, you know, yeah, so we're kind of middle, middle of the road, moving to more and more complex questions. But one thing that our team realizes that anything, you know, it, it just to, to prevent people from making bad decisions or making poor statements, <laughs> you need to be so, so, so careful, you know, like about presenting what you're actually showing, you know, if there's like, uh, there's a correlation between something or, or even implying that there's causation without, you know, doing, doing the background on it. So we're, we're not completely rear view and we're sort of in this middle round, but we're also going to go on record and say, you know, we're predicting what this value is going to be in six months. Right, right, right. No, the, and the reason, uh, not just the hype of machine learning, blah, blah, blah. That's not, the, my main reason for asking was going to lead into my next question, which was the, do you struggle at all with the expression in the tool of the evidence that backs up any types of conclusions that you're showing? Do your customers care? Like, well, how did you guys arrive at this? They absolutely care. And so like one of the, we spent a lot of time in the ability in amplitude, like any, any data point that you see, usually if you hover over it, there is a, there's a message that says click to inspect, or you can create a cohort off of that, or you can do, you can see the paths to that particular thing. So what we really made this effort to do is exactly right, is that people and working at two analytics companies now, Pendo and now Amplitude, you know, data trust and people being able to unravel what that number means in a way that makes sense to them seems like one of the massive limiters, right? It's just that thing that it, it's kind of like best laid plans start. It, what's it, that's the entropy that exists with these tools as people use them more and more. There's just, it gets messier, bunch of hands, you know, bunch of people are playing around. <laughs> and so at least with Amplitude, they try to make a really big effort to like, if you want to understand what, why that number is there and what is behind it, we try to make that really easy. Um, but we could always do better because, because in my mind, this is the number one difference between like the more data snacking approach, like, Oh, it kind of looks interesting. That number, <laughs> you know, right, right, right. and, and something that you can really pin your business on, which I think is what people, that's the dream of all this. But then once the once people start to ask good questions, you know, it really, it, it really challenges the tool. Right, right, right. Man, John, this has been, it's been fantastic uh, chatting with you. I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing this with, uh, with our listeners. Like, do you have any parting wisdom or anything you'd, you'd like to, to share with people that are kind of maybe working in the, more on the tech side or the, you know, the data side of the, the thing and uh, the fence and they're trying to, I want to, 
produce more use, whether it's reports or actually software applications, but we're trying to provide better stuff, more engaging, more useful. Any kind of closing advice you might give to someone like that? I'm kind of going back to what we were talking about from the UX research angle is that that I think that in this area, there's so much temptation to every, any one of us who've done this is that there's this constant push and pull between uh, customizability and then then this promise of you know preemptive insights, like a smart system, it's intelligent, you know it's doing these things and and then so you know, how prescriptive are you? is what you're presenting actually helping someone to do their job. So, so I think that the, it's probably reflective of my learning at Amplitude is that really going to human centered design, like really, really thinking about if the person's able to effectively do their job Mm -hmm. and really able to answer the questions that they're answering. I think that what happens is all of us want that, but then we hit this wall and we start to get really some conflating information from users and we start to, and then we're like, well, okay, we're just going to let them find what they want to find. And, and I think that that exploratory type of research should be something that's possible in these tools. And in fact, I think that leads to asking some of the best questions when users can do that. But I would really hope that people don't abandon the idea of like being really patient and seeing if before they just sort of throw their hands up in the air and we'll say, well, we'll just make a query builder and that's it. <laughs> that's it. Like really seeing if that thing can solve the problem. Um, and something that you, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it's something that that's really been on my mind a lot lately. Yeah. I, I, I talk about sometimes like with clients and, and people in this space about knowing whether or not you're producing an explanatory product or an exploratory product. And it doesn't mean you can't necessarily have some of both, but right. there's a big difference between like the value, like in your case, I'm guessing a lot of these people really want some explanations, like when they like tell us about what we can do to make our you know software better. Right. And they're not there for fun, but they might run across some things they didn't know were possible, which begins the questioning. But if you put all the effort on them, you're just shifting the tool effort over to the customer, right? You're making right. it that much harder for them to get the value out at which point they may abandon or quit. So it's not just knowing, are, are we explanatory or exploratory, or at least is this feature, is this uh, you know outcome that this goal that we're working on, the sprint? Just being aware of that, I think, is part of the challenge, right? Like, are we should they be able to walk away with like, I should be in the six to nineteen apples range, whatever that means? Like, should I yeah. be able to walk away with that level of clarity, you know, or not? So I, don't I think know. that it's also some like that's interesting you said that because a lot of features that we we're experimenting with. One thing that Amplitude does, it's kind of anytime you, we, we built like an undo feature. <laughs> so we try to make it really easy to like go really deep and then just kind of back out really gracefully. So it's kind of like infinite. Every version of the chart as you work on one is, sa- is saved. You can back out of it. There's a lot of like features like save as or kind of, you know, you're built like you could go to someone else's chart. And if you have some idea of where you want to take it, you could edit it, but you're not editing their chart. You're editing a copy and you can sort of think about it. But, but back to that point is I think that there's many things that you can do to encourage that, that you can juggle those needs concurrently, you know, for having definitive things and then also encouraging exploration. So we've found that with, with our product as we experiment with more. One, I just told you about it, like the ability to like telescope into a metric and then do more exploration around it. Like 
that didn't exist before. And then we're like, oh, well, how about when you hover over any data point, you allow them to like inspect that or explore that. Mm -hmm. So I would say that there, there are ways to kind of accommodate, accommodate both, um, at least from, from our perspective, what we've learned. Right. Right. And I think there's, all, there's always a, there's always some of both of that, you know, and I don't think most people are going to take everything on face value. Yeah. Um, but, but I, you know, I hear what you're saying. I, one of the things I've been recently working on is a, is a UX framework for this called the CED framework, which is conclu conclusion, evidence, and data. And it's not necessarily a literal expression of like, where should the screens go? What goes on every screen? But the concept that when, when possible, if, if the tool can provide conclusions with kind of the second tier being the evidence by which the tool or application arrived at this conclusion, and level three might be really getting into the raw data, like what are the queries, you know, what was the SQL that actually ran or whatever the heck it may be. Right. There's times when maybe that data is necessary, you know, early on in a customer journey. It may just be we need to build trust around these, this stuff. We can't be totally black box, but we don't actually expect people to spend a lot of time at the D level. Like we really want them to work in the C level, but it, it'll take time and, and, and evidence is required sometimes if you're going to, especially I got to go to the boss. Like I can't just tell them it's, Eight, we should be at 18, not 12. It's like, well, how did you arrive at that? <laughs> you know, we find a lot is the instrumentation rigor is like, that's, that's one of our big problems to solve really is, you know, there are these products on the market uh, that do kind of just try to record everything for right. you. And there's a lot of entropy there and there's a lot of issues. They're very fragile in some ways. So we as a company definitely believe in explicitly instrumenting these events. But at the same time, like you'd be amazed how many product teams, you know, there's this thing called a user story, right? You use write a user story that's right. from the user's perspective. What are you trying to do? Now you would think that like, okay, well, we'll tack on to the acceptance criteria for any story that, you know, you'll just, you'll use noun and verb and you'll get these properties and you'll get these things like integrating instrumentation on the, the product level, not necessarily like, okay, we're instrumenting like how our servers are working or anything, but just what did the user do? that's still relatively new mm -hmm. people, the, people who've worked in environments that just do that as second nature that, okay, they're in another thing, but we find that that companies even need to change that approach. So, you know, you, you mentioned your, your CED thing, like what's interesting is that extends to the UX of instrumenting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting from that. It's, it's, a, it's, it, you know, you're the user trying to, draw some conclusion, you're doing these things, but it's almost like service design in some sense, because you need to have, a, you need to like design the approach to even instrumenting the stuff. So it kind of gets, it kind of makes your head hurt sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> All of this stuff makes my head hurt, <laughs> but that's why we have conversations. Hopefully we're, we're knowledge sharing and, and, and it's like giant aspirin conversations or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I found this super useful. Thanks. You, thanks for coming on the show. Where, where can people like follow you? I know you're, I, I found you on Twitter. I forget how, but what's your, I mean, Twitter's you? good. I'm I've, I've installed a stay focused app to prevent more than 20 minutes a day. Of Twitter. <laughs> so that, but, but I will find, you will find me eventually there. I write a fair amount on, on medium and it's pretty easy to find me there. Um, okay. If you just type in like John Cutler product that I have about 400, plus posts on medium. Some are better than others, but awesome. um, yeah, that, that's, that's the best way or, or for right now. Awesome. Well, I will definitely uh, link both of those things, your medium uh, page and uh, your Twitter up in the show links. And man, John, it has been really fun to uh, chat with you here. So thanks for uh, coming on the show. 
Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Super. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.